Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Oblivious to the Obvious. Be a healer, not a hater. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 14th, 2010. My daughter called from college last weekend That's always a treat, but this time she was in tears. Another high school classmate had stepped in front of a train on the tracks near our house. Brian was the fifth suicide at our high school in nine months. My daughter remembered him from her math class as a fun kid with a big family. Brian's brave mother confirmed in the newspaper that he had struggled with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Another human being in need of healing love, just like each one of us. And then she continued, Had I ever heard of Fred Phelps, she asked in a quivery voice. No, never heard of him. Well, she sobbed, Fred Phelps was some nut job pastor with a website called God Hates Fags. He and his hate mongers had targeted our local high school for a protest on Friday. And in fact, if you go to Phelps' website, it claims to have conducted, quote, 41,226 peaceful demonstrations opposing the fag lifestyle of soul-damning, nation-destroying filth." End quote. Well, Fred Phelps is badly wrong. He's also a liar. We can say with confidence that no, God does not hate gays. Yes, God loves my nephew Sam and my niece Jessie. He loves my neighbor's daughter, my former pastor's son, and my current pastor's brother. God loves my sister-in-law's brother, my daughter's high school friends, and Dick Cheney's daughter, Mary. And he definitely loved the transgendered child of our church friends who died from a car accident last week. Yes, God is love, and in him there is no darkness at all. He loves all the world and every person in it. Astonishingly, God even loves haters like Fred Phelps. Luke's Gospel for this week describes how Jesus called 12 men to be his closest confidants. He invested them with power and authority. But power and authority to do what? We read, to drive out demons and to enlighten the darkness, to cure diseases, to preach the subversive love of God, and to heal the sick. So they went out from village to village, writes Luke, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. For 2,000 years, Jesus has invited people to be healers and not haters. Healing love is the mark of a disciple. 
By this said Jesus, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Jesus invites us to bring the outsider inside, to include the excluded. He tells us to befriend the broken, heal the hurting, and embrace the alien. Jesus calls us to care and to cure, not to condemn. Which, according to one world history, word history, comes from the prefix calm and the Latin damnare. That is to say, to cause great harm or damage. This is a tall order for each one of us. The first disciples stumbled and bumbled. They failed and they floundered. In the gospel for this week, a distraught father screamed in desperation from a large crowd for Jesus to heal his son. He's my only child, and I begged your disciples to heal him, but they could not. And then when Jesus rebuked his closest followers and explained his mission once again, we read, they did not understand what this meant. They couldn't heal. They didn't understand. There's a sad story of misunderstanding and failure among the apostles, most notably by Peter. He denied that he would ever deny Jesus, but then did so three times. To his credit, we read that he, quote-unquote, wept bitterly after doing so. Peter also had a transforming vision that convinced him that God played no favorites and did not, in fact, hate Gentiles. Yes, God loved even the Gentiles, and Peter proclaimed so. But years later, he separated himself from those whom he considered impure and unclean Gentiles when he caved in to zealots of ritual purity. Whereas a besieged Jesus welcomed the bedraggled crowds and healed them, we read how the twelve disciples urged him to, quote, send them away. When someone outside of the Jesus movement tried to heal a person, John boasted with misplaced pride, Master, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. And then, toward the end of his life, when Jesus passed through a Samaritan village and they refused even basic hospitality to him, James and John exploded in rage. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Jesus defined our love of God by our love of neighbor. You can't separate the two. To have one is to have the other, and to neglect one is to lose them both. This necessary connection between claiming to love God and demonstrating that we love our fellow human beings became so embedded in the early Christian traditions that all three Gospels contain a version of the story about this greatest command, Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 10. The command to love our neighbor is repeated almost verbatim by Paul in Romans and Galatians, who says that it's the only thing that matters. By James in James 2.8, 
and most memorably by John in 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In the epistle from 2 Corinthians this week, Paul describes how a veil over our hearts can obscure the obvious. Our minds can be made dull, writes Paul, even to a simple truth like God deeply loves every person without qualification or exception. Like Fred Phelps and even the closest followers of Jesus, we can become purveyors of death, darkness, and condemnation. We shouldn't be smug or sanctimonious. The pressures of cultural conformity are enormous. Our only hope is for what Paul calls a dramatic transformation by the Spirit of God in which he writes, the veil is taken away. Paul says that through a metamorphosis by the Spirit of God, we can become icons of Jesus himself. As we contemplate God's healing love, we're transformed by that love and in turn reflect and refract it to each and every person we meet. And now for further reflection, consider the poem attributed to the German Lutheran pastor Martin Niemöller. Niemöller lived from 1892 to 1984. He openly opposed the Nazis and Hitler himself and spent eight years in prison camps. The title of the poem is called First They Came. First they came for the communists, but I was not a communist, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the socialists and the trade unionists, but I was neither, so I did not speak out. Then they came for the Jews, but I was not a Jew, so I did not speak out. And when they came for me, there was no one left to speak out for me. Martin Niemöller, first they came. For books this week, I review a title called Zaytun by Dave Eggers. San Francisco, McSweeney's book, 2009, 351 pages. Abdul Rahman Zaytun is the sort of neighbor you would want when a disaster like Hurricane Katrina strikes. Born in Syria as the eighth of 13 children, Zaytun, as his friends called him, adopted New Orleans as his home way back in 1994. In New Orleans, he met his wife, Kathy, an American who had converted to Islam long before they met. Zaytun owned a painting contract business and six pieces of property with 18 tenants. For her part, Kathy kept the business books and cared for their four children. Zaytun epitomized hard work and civic pride. He once even biked to work 
had a flat tire, and then carried his bicycle the rest of the way. As a good Muslim, he stopped to pray five times a day. When the hurricane of mythical scale and severity plowed into New Orleans, Zaytun drove to each of his nine job sites to secure them. Kathy took the kids to Baton Rouge and then later Phoenix. Zaytun was ready and waiting for Katrina. He wanted to protect his property. The day after, the waters in his neighborhood actually receded and the streets dried out. Things were eerily quiet except for the barking dogs. But then the levees broke, and when the waters had finished their assault, Zaytun's house was swamped in nine feet of water. He had moved belongings to the second floor and pitched a tent on his roof. From there, he became a one-man rescue team with his 16-foot aluminum canoe. As he paddled around his neighborhood, he delivered aid and extracted both friends and strangers from certain death. Every day, he paddled to his neighbor's house to feed the trapped dogs. He absolutely loved the sense of pride and purpose in serving the city he loved. But the hurricane was nothing compared to the personal disaster that then befell Zaytun. About a week after the storm, and just as he was ready to leave New Orleans to reunite with Kathy, he and three friends were arrested at gunpoint by a roving posse, handcuffed, and then caged in a makeshift outdoor prison in the Greyhound bus terminal. German Shepherd dogs and pepper spray kept the prisoners submissive. Strip searches, fingerprinting, and interrogations were followed by deportment to a maximum security prison. All with no charges, no opportunity for a phone call or legal counsel, or the least semblance of due process. After almost three weeks, Zaytun was finally released. His wife Kathy seems to have suffered more mental trauma than he. At one level, this book reads like a vulgar case of racial profiling. Zaytun was even taunted as a member of Al-Qaeda in the Taliban while he was in prison. But on another level, Zaytun's personal misfortune is a cameo of the gross failure of FEMA and the price that ordinary citizens paid for that. The book, in fact, recounts several similarly bizarre stories. For his part, Zaytun has no time for grudges. Instead, he's rebuilt or remodeled at least 114 houses in devastated New Orleans. The title of the book, Zaytun, the author, Dave Eggers. For film this week, I review a movie from the year 2005, Don't Come Knocking. The cowboy movie star Howard Spence, played by Sam Shepard, enjoyed his 15 minutes of Hollywood fame. But when this film opens, he quite literally walks off the set of his current production in Moab, Utah. He's 60 years old and searching for second chances with his family that he's neglected for 30 years.
His first stop is his mother in Elko, Nevada. She welcomes him, but wants to know if all that stuff about them that she's collected in newspaper articles is true. Drugs, wild living, arrests, and affairs. She advises How Howard of skeletons in his closet that in his profligate past, he didn't even know existed. So he then proceeds to Butte, Montana, connects with a five-minute flame named Doreen, and learns further unwelcome surprises. Spence hopes for reconciliation, but he meets only regret and remorse. Clearly, acting roles in Hollywood are far neater and cleaner than real-life stories. And so, in the last scene, he's back on set in Moab, riding into the sunset after kissing the gorgeous girl and promising her his love. The music of T-Bone Burnett and the images of Western wilderness compensate for director Vim Vender's quirky script and offbeat humor. Don't Come Knocking, starring Sam Shepard and written by Vim Vender's. <clears throat> and finally for this week, with Ash Wednesday, we've posted a poem by the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann was born in 1933, and for four, over 30 years he's combined the best of critical scholarship with love for the local church in service to the kingdom of God. The title of Brueggemann's poem is Marked by Ashes. Ruler of the night, guarantor of the day, this day a gift from you. This day, like none other you have ever given or we have ever received. This Wednesday dazzles us with gift and newness and possibility. This Wednesday burdens us with the tasks of the day, for we are already halfway home, halfway back to committees and memos, halfway back to calls and appointments, halfway on to next Sunday, halfway back, half frazzled, half expectant, half turned toward you, half rather not. This Wednesday is a long way from Ash Wednesday, but all our Wednesdays are marked by ashes. We begin this day with that taste of ash in our mouth, of failed hope and broken promises, of forgotten children and frightened women, we ourselves are ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We can taste our mortality as we roll the ash around on our tongues. We are able to ponder our ashness with some confidence, only because our every Wednesday of ashes anticipates your Easter victory over that dry, flaky taste of death. On this Wednesday, we submit our ashen way to you, your Easter parade of newness. Before the sun sets, take our Wednesday and Easter us. Easter us to joy and energy and courage and freedom. 
Easter us that we may be fearless for your truth. Come here in Easter our Wednesday with mercy and justice and peace and generosity. We pray as we wait for the risen one who comes soon. Marked by Ashes by Walter Brueggemann. This poem was taken from his book, Prayers for a Privileged People. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 14th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.